Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick announcement before we get rolling with this episode. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. All right, folks, welcome back to HPO. Uh, Today, uh, I feel like this is becoming a theme, but I've got a return guest, but I I, I, I like the theme because generally speaking, I like my guests, but (laughs) got uh, Dr. Mike Nelson coming back and Dr. Nelson had a lot of fun chatting with you last time about some of like the metabolic flexibility stuff. And I think uh, we probably left plenty on the table there and an opportunity to, to chat again. So thanks for taking some time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here, um, especially again. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I was uh, just looking. I was listening to some of your podcasts, and I didn't get to this one yet, but uh, I'm definitely going to listen to it today after this. Uh, but I would love to chat a little bit about it. Was just in the realm of kind of this bre- breathing breath breathing mm-hmm. as, as an endurance athlete and a coach. One question I've been seeing a lot more in the last year now is just people thinking about this. Whereas like when I first got in the sport, it was just like, I think the assumption was kind of, well, you just breathe and that'll kind of take care of itself. And yeah. I mean, there was stuff in like Jack Daniel's book and things like that about like uh, two to one and one to two, like being optimal for especially like kind of some more up-tempo type sessions and things like that. But outside of that, I just feel like it hasn't maybe been dove into as much as some people are, are hoping for in the, in the current current state. So what's going on with the literature with breathing? Are we seeing some new stuff pop up that's interesting to you? Um, I would say some new stuff. I wouldn't say there's an absolute avalanche of brand new information. I think uh, like books like Breathe, like from James Nestor, which I really enjoyed. I thought that was really good. Obviously, Patrick McEwen's been doing some stuff on that for quite some time now. A lot of his stuff is based on the Russian method of Buteyko breathing, and he's got some other stuff on that too. It, it's kind of, I think, one of those trends, kind of like ketogenic diets and other things that, you know, they've been around for a long time. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, they just kind of get real popular. And anytime we see, at least in the fitness world, trends become super popular, like the pendulum tends to go 
all the way like well past moderate into the other extreme and then it gets hangs out there for a while and then probably will swing back to the other end and i think the resurgence of nasal breathing is probably responsible for that and I think overall learning to nasal breathe is super beneficial. Um, I like nasal breathing at rest. I think it's a little bit more efficient and that's probably how we were designed. However, when the pendulum so far to the right, you have people that are probably under breathing during maximal exercise, right? So if you're going absolute max all out, which by definition is going to be a shorter uh, time, then I think you don't want to be limited by how much air you can get in and out. And if you're trying to nasal breathe at max exertion, like a VO2 max test, especially near the end, you're probably compromising your performance on that side. However, if you're constantly breathing through your mouth, especially during sleep and just hanging out at rest, there's probably some other things you should look at there too. So I think the answer is probably as we'll get into somewhere in, in between more kind of moderate, but that's that's never a real popular answer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's really sure. context. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I was told once was that like nasal breathing is a good gauge of whether you're like below your aerobic threshold. Mm-hmm. And so when folks are kind of learning to dial in to their perceived effort, which you know, I, I obviously I love as a as a guide and a metric, but when you're working with someone new, it may be something that they have to kind of fine tune a bit before they really get it figured out. Versus, you know, someone who's been training for endurance sport and you can basically give them an intensity and they can pretty much get within the ballpark of where they're, they're targeting just by how they feel. Uh, but that nasal, the nasal breathing up to aerobic threshold, I found is an interesting, maybe teaching tool if possible. Is there any validity to that as being a, an accurate guide on average, or is that something that was just kind of bastardized over the years as well? Yeah, there might be, but I can't find an exact study on it. I know uh, Brian McKenzie has talked a little bit about it, and I think some of the stuff he helped with is still unpublished yet. Um, but I think in practice, it's probably a pretty good rough guide. The The caveat with that, I would say, is that it's going to take some practice to do nasal in and nasal out. So how I got into it was, man, almost probably four years ago now, I was working with more CrossFit athletes, and I still work with a few now. And the people I was getting were people who just, you know, love to redline themselves every day. And so we would start doing stuff like heart rate variability, do some heart rate during exercise. And usually when I started working with them, it was because they were, you know, overtrained or overreached. Their performance had stalled. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Their Metcons weren't getting better. And we looked at their training, their HRV and markers were like, yeah, you probably have overdone it a little bit. But trying to get them to do, you know, moderate zone two, zone three type aerobic development or easy work, that wasn't so easy because they didn't feel like they did anything. So I tried putting heart rate straps on them. Like, okay, here's your max heart rate, you know, like the Phil Moffatone, 180 minus your age. This is your new upper rate limit. I don't want you to go above this. And the dog would eat the heart rate strap or it would fall off or it wouldn't work or I couldn't get the data and something would always happen with it. So I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, okay, it's like, how else can we restrict them like to kind of get them down below max, but maybe make it harder. So I'm like, what if you only breathe in and out through your nose? And around that time, I read some Patrick McEwen stuff and I'm like, okay. So I tried it on myself. And just on a rower, like I would max out at like, like 110, 112. 
you know, pretty darn low. And I was like, huh, my output was low, but it felt like my RPE felt really, really high. I was like, interesting. So I had some people uh, do it and they all reported back. So I had them do, okay, you're going to do a 5k on the rower. I don't care how hard you go. The caveat is you can only breathe in and out through your nose. You can't open your mouth. And pretty much everyone reported back like their max heart rate. Uh, one guy in particular was like 115. I'm like, how did it feel? He's like, I felt like I was drowning in air. <laughs> <laughs> like it felt really hard. But for that uh, audience, that was actually almost perfect because it felt really hard. So they were kind of into it because that's what they were used to. But it achieved my objective of trying to get them to do some lower intensity stuff. Mm. What I found was like for this guy in particular, you know, after about eight weeks of doing this two, three times a week, you know, his max was nasal in and out, like around 150 beats per minute, like relatively easy. Like for myself, I did a bunch of training on it and yeah, I can hit the high 150s nasal in and nasal out and be pretty good. So I think it is a good gauge to be sub max. How sub max it is, again, I think depends upon the person and their, their breathing efficiency and a bunch of other things. And just practice too. You know, because you are almost on purpose to limiting air exchange to some degree, you're going to be building up more uh, CO2. We can argue if that's a benefit or a con. And I think it just depends on what area of training you're at and what your training goals are. But I think for submax stuff, I do like it and it's useful. It will definitely limit you from all out max. I've seen um, some VO2 max tests where someone is trying to do nasal in, nasal out. And you'll see that they're just hypoventilating, right? They're just not getting enough air moved in and out under max. Um, where it really ends up, I haven't seen any hard data to say, is that really at your you know, anaerobic threshold? And there's even debate in the literature about you know, what that actually is. Are we looking at lactate? Are we looking at changes in air being exchanged? Are we looking at RER? Like what are, there's all these different inflection points we can look at. You know, RC is another one. So it's probably somewhere in there, but without an exact test, I think you'd be kind of hard pressed uh, to say exactly where it winds up. Mm. Yeah. And then, yeah, so I'm thinking about this from like a practical standpoint. It sounds like uh, if nothing else, it could be if you're working with someone or you yourself are having that, having difficulty just really keeping the reins in on some of those early base building phases even if you're not going to say, all right, I'm going to do nasal breathing for the entirety of this, this base easy run. Uh, you could spot check yourself where like you're out mm -hmm. there running along and like, okay, I'm going to like every 10th minute nasal breathe. And if it becomes too, too laborious to kind of keep the pace up, then I could probably should, could, should pull back during the rest. And then you can revert back to whatever kind of feels a little more, a little more natural. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a training aspect to it. So what I like to do is if I can do hands-on work on the person like in person, which is not always possible since most of my clients are online, then I'm looking at breathing efficiency. You know, what part of the rib cage is moving? Is the rib cage doing, you know, 360 degree expansion? Are they kind of over belly breathing or is the rib cage like completely locked and they can't do anything? So once I can look at those mechanical things, uh, most people will be able to breathe better and their heart rate will actually lower for the same amount of work, right? Because we've increased their efficiency. Um, if it's online, I agree with what you're saying that you can play with all sorts of stuff, right? So I may put a limit on, okay, I want you to nasal breathe for the first uh, 50%. And then I want you to shift to do nasal in and mouth out. 
like Brian McKenzie has talked about like his gears method, which I really like, you know, nasal in, nasal out at a kind of slow pace, nasal in, nasal out at a relatively kind of rapid pace, nasal in, mouth out, and then mouth in, mouth out. So it's kind of a way of uh, listing intensity. If I can get heart rate, that's kind of a good thing too, to kind of cross check to see where it is, especially as they're learning. I think the heart rate for each one of those zones will change a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, if you're in a phase where someone says, okay, I've got like four weeks before a big competition, uh, you, you're probably going to be a lot more conservative, right? And you're not going to be like, oh, bro, all nasal in, nasal out all the time because their performance is going to drop, which is probably not what you want to do right before a bigger competition. If it's an off season and I've got like, ah, I've got like, you know, 10 months to play with, great. We can do some, you know, old school aerobic building. I'll force you to do nasal in, nasal out. Um, and then just over time, I'll do like a 5K on the rower because online it's great because a lot of people I have are not necessarily runners per se. And I automatically get all their wattage. I get all their metrics online, which makes it much easier to quantify. And I may say, okay, now you're doing your 5K nasal in, nasal out. I know it's not going to be close to your max performance. We're purposely keeping you down lower. And we may do that for six to eight weeks. And then I may say, okay, still do a 5K. But first half, nasal in, nasal out. Second half, nasal in, mouth out, right? So I may kind of slowly ratchet them up over time once I get more accustomed to it. And when we do a test day, it's like, okay, this is a distress test day. I don't give a rat's ass how you breathe, right? The only thing I'm gonna care about is don't hurt yourself and what's the maximum performance we can get. So again, I think it just depends on the, the context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And it, my final question on that is just in regards to, is there anything unique about the airflow going through the nasal passage versus the mouth? Or is it more just like this restriction of that entrance point being smaller? Yeah, there's a bunch of proposed stuff and there's a little bit of data for it uh, from maybe adding a little bit of moisture, warming the air up, maybe. Uh, again, it depends on, are you dealing with people that are healthy? Do you deal with people who have, you know, slight asthma, exercise induced asthma, you know, in those kind of more pathologies, I think nasal breathing is probably going to be more beneficial. There's some stuff with nitric oxide release, which, yeah, but again, there's not a, like a ton of studies on that and we don't know exactly how much that relates to performance. Hmm. Um, so I think there are, there are some benefits, but then the big caveat is by definition, you are going to exchange less air, right? So again, if you're sub max, eh, it's probably not a, a big deal. Again, if you're at all out max, I, I don't know. I haven't seen anyone on an all out max effort that could nasal in and nasal out compared to using their mouth. So I don't know, maybe that'll be proven wrong at, at some point. Um, and again, that gets into the whole sub area of, are you respiratory limited? Is it a muscle limitation? Like, is it, you know, Tim Noakes stuff, like a central governor thing, which kind of incorporates all of it. And as you know, that gets like super messy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 You, well, and in a lot of topics like this, I find that when I'm being asked about it, my, my follow-up question is, well, let's take a look at some of these bigger movers first and like make sure we're online in line there yeah. versus the the nasal breathing stuff. Cause like, if you, if you're not getting sleep, right, if you're not getting your recovery, right. And you're not even executing your workouts properly and consistently, like let's keep, let's clean that. Let's get these big block movers out of the way first. And then once that kind of, it becomes intuitive and second nature and you're adding, looking to add a little bit of extra, 
like excitement via curiosity or something like that. We can maybe play around a little more with this. So um, yeah. sometimes my biggest just- question there at first is just at rest walking around. So if you do a walk in the morning, just walking, not running, are you breathing out of your nose or breathing out of your mouth? And if you tell me you're not sure, go walk and then set an alarm for a random time. Like you said, when the alarm goes off, then just check in with yourself, right? Because you want to see what subconsciously you're defaulting to. And if you're breathing in and out of your mouth, the first thing we're going to have you do is just breathe in and out of your nose, right? So very, very, very submax. Because I think what you said is correct that I don't necessarily maybe want to throttle their performance right away, but if I can get some easy wins, like walking around, possibly sleep, other things like that, making sure nutrition's on point, all these other things, I think nasal breathing is beneficial at low intensities is where I'm going to start first, especially in a higher performing athlete. And then we're going to slowly maybe get to that, you know, high end performance again. So yeah, I definitely agree with that. Cause I think there's some people that are just like, all right, nasal breathing. This is the thing. Woohoo. You're doing mm-hmm. it all the time. Nasal in, nasal out for everything. And, you know, depending on where you are in your training block, that may actually cost you some performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of highlights a bit of like the performance side of that. Is there anything, cause you, you mentioned like kind of the starting point is possibly just, Hey, when you're just sitting around at your desk or walking around kind of practice, getting in the routine of nasal breathing or making that kind of your default is there any good indication of what that's going to be doing from potential health benefits for folks just outside of the performance realm? Yeah. What I've seen is that it appears nasal breathing is a little bit more, I guess you could say from a sympathetic to parasympathetic side of the nervous system, probably more relaxing, right? So if you think about how humans are just generally wired, you know, for maximal all out exercise, yes, at some point the diaphragm, let's say we've got a really high functioning human, the diaphragm is going to be doing most of the moving all the time of air. That's in general. However, we have muscles in the neck, right? The SEM, the scalenes, all these muscles that go from basically the neck down to the top part of the rib cage. And during maximal all exercise, um, you'll see those start to engage, right? So if I hold my head still and I contract these muscles, I can kind of sort of rake up on the rib cage a little bit more and I can get more air in. So those muscles were kind of designed more for accessory uh, breathing during high out exercise. Unfortunately, a lot of people, you'll notice that they get kind of flipped or they're more kind of what they call upper chest breathers, where those muscles are working more than they should. Most of the time I see that those people also tend to breathe a lot through their mouth. And what I've seen is that if they can breathe more through their nose, we can maybe do some other mechanical things to help them, that they generally get those neck muscles to kind of relax a little bit more. Normally I see their heart rate variability trend up a little bit better So they're becoming a little bit more parasympathetic. So my current thought is if I can get someone to breathe through their nose, I'm probably getting some mechanical advantages we don't entirely understand, especially submax and at rest. And it appears that when they start doing that, again, maybe this is an awareness, maybe it's a CO2 thing, maybe it's a mechanical thing related to feedback from the neck muscles, diaphragm engagement. I don't really know. But I do see that their HRV tends to trend more to be parasympathetic. And that then allows us a little bit more training volume and recovery seems to be better. And they just tend to do better overall. So I do think that there's a benefit to it. The exact rationale or what is the biggest factor there, I'm not 100% sure of, to be honest. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I could be way off base here, but I thought I remembered reading somewhere once that they were using like breathwork techniques with folks who had like high levels of anxiety or dealt with like anxiety type uh, issues in general. And that was sometimes like a, maybe a little less invasive way to try to work on that before you start mm-hmm. putting them on some sort of like anti-anxiety medication, or, you know, I guess any, any type of more invasive work, if you can, if you can reduce that through breathing. I think most people would probably be open-minded to that if it, if it works, I guess, obviously it has to work. Has, is that something that you've seen in line with that too? Is, is that, or I guess maybe I'm just asking if I'm making stuff up now or not. (laughs) No, there's some, there's some interesting data in that area for sure. And again, what I've seen anecdotally is people who tend to have higher anxiety, rarely do I ever, God, I'm thinking back to like 15 years now, Rarely have I ever seen someone who has very high anxiety has really, really good breathing patterns. Mm, I rarely ever see that. Um, Usually then the question is, okay, if we get better breathing patterns, maybe do some nasal breathing. We know doing longer exhales that when you do that, just something called uh, respiratory sinus arrhythmia or RSA, it's not a bad thing, but as you do a longer exhale, you get more parasympathetic tone that more rest and digest and relax uh, branch of the nervous system. So we can get you more efficient. That's going to reduce some stress for breathing, probably get your neck muscles to chill out a little bit more. Then you can do some specific breath work in the morning. Uh, I like having people do kind of like a meditation where they're taking just a longer exhale to make it real simple. Bateco has some stuff with that. Inhale through your nose, purse lift, exhale. And then I got from um, Dr. Huberman too, is that, if you can sit with your eyes kind of relaxed, uh, especially like doing this outside and just that kind of relaxed, kind of chilled out more slight peripheral vision, uh, that's also increasing parasympathetic tone, right? If you think about what's happens to people under very, very high heart rate, the vision field starts to narrow and that's designed on purpose. So if someone walks into the room with a gun, you're like, get super focused on what that actually is. And that's very high sympathetic, which is extremely useful in that situation. Again, however, we don't want to be hanging out doing that all the time. So we can just sit more relaxed, get a little bit more peripheral vision. Uh, that can get more parasympathetic tone also. So I think there's kind of multiple things you can do with both the visual system, breathing, mechanics, uh, to try to increase that parasympathetic tone overall. In general, I find that that tends to help a lot with anxiety. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and to go to flip on the opposite end of the spectrum again, I think one of the interesting things is you reminded me of when you were making that description was like when I'm doing like short interval sessions or VO2 max type interval sessions, one, th- one trick I'll use sometimes is, is like you pick a spot like within eyesight mm-hmm. range and just really zone in on it and focus. I'm going to get there first. And then maybe depending on how long the interval is, you pick another spot after that. And it does seem that like that tunnel vision is both kind of intuitive in the sense that that's kind of what your, what your, your body wants to do at that intensity or that heart rate. But, uh, I've always found that to be a useful, a useful trick within workouts to stay focused and kind of stay in line. So it's, it's interesting that that kind of lines up with what would kind of happen in nature with that type of a scenario too. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. 
It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often, people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now, on to the next topic. Yeah, and I think if you're you know running or you're on the rower, you're doing something where you're more or less confined, I, I agree that that's probably a benefit. So if people are rowing, I'll tell them to watch your output, right? Because you're going to stare at something anyway. You might as well look at something that's going to give you feedback because it's very easy to rely only on how you feel, which gets distorted because everything in your body is going to tell you this is a stupid ass idea and you should stop. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look at the output and you see it creeping down, you get that automatic um, feedback. However, if you're, let's say, a team sport player playing in the NFL, <laughs> Man, you don't want to have tunnel vision because you're going to miss a whole bunch of stuff and you're probably going to be a really shitty athlete, mm-hmm. you know? So again, I think it depends upon the, the context and what you're trying to do and, you know, how far are you going to go into that kind of red line area? You know, if you're doing all out max, you know, sprinting, things like that, you can probably get away with doing that and that's probably going to be a benefit. Again, if you're doing more of a team sport and you have something that has a very, very high skill level, involved that's probably not going to be quite so good yeah i didn't think about that with like the team sports stuff but i i I think of it if i'm thinking of like the nfl a slot receiver that could maybe Mm -hmm. be beneficial in the short term but long term if you do that too many times and get and and lose track of who's hitting you and how they're hitting you you might pay for that down the road a little bit but yeah uh, definitely yeah it's interesting interesting stuff uh you you mentioned one other thing that i wanted to, to jump into at some point during this, this episode, which was just, uh, heart rate and its usage outside of the act of the, the workout or even the post-workout analysis itself. And more along the lines of there's just the usage of it in terms of gauging kind of how and when to maybe do specific types of workouts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of tools and devices now that have all sorts of different claims as to what they're going to do and tell you with like, heart rate variability to just, you know, generally being able to track your heart rate 24 seven. And with that data comes, you know, a lot of interesting things like, Oh, now we can tell you how deep you're sleeping, or if you're, you know, in REM sleep versus light sleep, how many times you're waking up, how many total hours, all these different metrics. And when I've looked into it, what I can gather is with those type of products, there's definitely some value to like the heart rate variability and probably also some value in kind of having some individual data sets of like, well, here's where my resting heart rate dips to at night when I'm fully recovered versus when I may be a little overworked worked or overcooked, in which case then maybe, you know, say I'm 10, 12 beats per minute higher on my bottomed out heart rate overnight. That might be a good sign that it's time for a rest day versus another short interval session. Um, Versus saying, looking at the tracker and finding out, oh, I had eight hours of sleep last night. It says two and a half were deep and, you know, whatever many minutes were in REM, which I think is, if if I remember correctly, the research is a little more sporadic on whether we're able to actually track that sort of stuff. 
uh, am I, am I heading in the right direction with that kind of understanding or is there more to it than that? No, I would generally agree with that. Um, for the sleep stuff, most of the stuff I've seen is on aura, which I have an aura ring I've had since the second design came out. It's like one of the first 12 people to get one, uh, shout out to Harpreet for hooking me up on that. <laughs> and if we look at what's been published on it now, this was on their first generation algorithm, I believe, which is in the journal sleep. Uh, it was like 70% accurate compared to a PSG. So kind of a standard sleep study. Uh, HRV is very accurate, but there's a couple of caveats to that. And we'll come back to um, the newer algorithms may be a little bit more accurate. Um, but like you said, let's, for the sake of argument, assume it's a hundred percent dead nuts on accurate, which it's not, and there's going to be variations between, you know, one person versus the next person, that kind of stuff. If we look at the actual sleep metrics itself, how I view those is that's just a response of the system and prediction is very, very hard, right? If we go, okay, what is the biggest predictor of performance that's not performance itself and you only get one factor? Boof. I'd say all of them kind of suck, right? Because everybody's had like an amazing day training on like three hours of sleep. Yeah. Right. But they know they're not going to do that every day in and day out. Right. They've had amazing, you know, training session when their HRV has just been complete dog shit. But again, you know, you're not going to do that day in and day out. Most of the things for at least strength and power that predict performance are kind of measures of strength and power, right? <laughs> Vertical jump, things like that. Uh, sometimes sub-max tests can predict a little bit of max test. But again, you're talking about a similar performance again. So in terms of prediction, I would say all of them are probably not super useful. However, I think they are super useful for looking at the cost of everything that you've been doing. And I think heart rate variability is really good at assessing the cost of your lifestyle, your performance, your training, your sleep, everything, and the status of your autonomic nervous system. If we go back to the sleep thing, looking at deep versus REM, the other part where people get really kind of caught up is that I can, so I did this the other day. If I wanted to show you an amazing night of sleep on Aura, I would show you the sleep not last night, but the night before. I had a really high for myself, high amount of deep sleep, high amount of REM, if you looked at that score, you're like, wow, for you, that's an amazing sleep score. Woohoo, good job. But what they probably didn't realize is the night before I traveled back from uh, Bozeman, Montana, which was at a little bit of elevation. So I got up early, I had a plane flight, had everything else. So the night before was absolute crap just because of the short duration of only five hours. So now I've got to change in elevation. I've got to change from going from five hours of sleep to being at home, sleeping in my own bed, back in my own environment, back at sea level again. So the night before I had like four minutes of deep sleep and like an hour of REM sleep. Your body is designed to be like, hey, wait a minute. I'm kind of quote missing some of those sleep architecture that I need. And it appears that there's kind of this catch up period where the next night, as long as your environment and everything else is on point, you'll tend to overshoot your normal metrics a little bit. But people will look at that and go, oh, wow. I did amazing last night. Woohoo! Time to go balls out today. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Right. So I think the sleep scores are somewhat environmental dependent, somewhat dependent on your lifestyle, performance-wise, hit or miss. Right. So, for example, if someone came to me and said, you know, 
I don't care what you do. I just want more deep sleep. I don't care if it's related to performance. I don't care about anything else. Just as a crazy one-off experiment, consistently every night I want a higher deep sleep score. So you would do all the normal things, right? You look at their sleep environment, make sure it's cold, maybe play around with meal timing at night, like all light exposure, all of those things. But I could also say, I want you to start doing an hour and a half of like zone two cardio per day. And I can almost virtually guarantee your deep sleep's going to go up, right? Because your body probably needs more in order to recover because of the work that you actually did. Now, does that mean you've got more deep sleep? You're better now? Hmm. Maybe, maybe not. It's because you actually did more work. Now, if that fits your training goals, then, you know, perfect. We're good. If your aerobic score was, you know, complete dog crap, yeah, doing some zone two work is probably going to pay off via a better aerobic base overall. So that's where I think it gets kind of messy. If we go back and we look at heart rate variability, there is some data to show for endurance athletes, it may be predictive. I would say it's not amazing, but there's some data that it is associated with that. If we look at strength and power athletes, almost no, no association acutely, meaning I got up, I did my HRV score, I'm gonna go out and do my exercise performance, how do those two correlate with each other? And again, like we said, it's the caveat of it's probably more related to uh, sleep scores and other things. And the fact that your body can buffer a fair amount of stress in the very short term, right? And you've probably had this happen. We've all seen athletes who have to show up at an event. They're a little bit nervous the night before, you know, on paper that night before just looks horrible, but yet they go out and they do very, very high level of performance the next day. Right. I can guarantee that that night was probably just a one-off, right? They're mm -hmm. not living that way for the previous three weeks. So that's the part that people tend to forget. Mm -hmm. Now we can get a little bit fancier and go, okay, maybe we should start looking at resting heart rate in addition to HRV. Maybe we should take a three-day average, a seven-day average. Maybe we should measure it a different way. There's a bunch of different things to kind of um, look at it. Uh, but what I do is if someone, if their seven-day HRV average is good, and they acutely have a very low heart rate variability, and I don't know anything about them, I haven't worked with them that long, I'm probably not gonna change their training that day, right? Because they're probably gonna be okay. Now, if they start trending down, i.e. they become more and more sympathetic, okay, now at some point we're probably gonna do something different. Now, HRV could be related to poor sleep, could be nutrition, could be their under eating, could be a whole bunch of different things. And that's the downside, all right? So heart rate variability is very good at telling you the acute status of your autonomic nervous system at that single point in time. It, other stuff, maybe, maybe not. So I use HRV more as the cost of everything that's been going on. The second part is uh, the HRV on Aura is super accurate in terms of if we compare it to you know, medical grade equipment, do we get kind of the same numbers running the same time domain analysis? Very, very spot on, right? They can map the whole, the whole wave, even though it's from the pressure in your hand, it's not from an electrical signal on the heart. The downside again, going back to context, is you're grabbing the aura data over the course of sleep. It's averaged out over the whole night and you're laying down. Um, most of the data on HRV is a single point measurement done in the AM first thing most of the time seated or in people like yourself, an endurance athlete would probably be standing. And what you find is 
I've lost track of how many emails I get from, you know, usually pretty high end athletes that are like, yeah, I bought that aura ring. I was looking at HRV and yeah, that thing's crap. It doesn't tell me anything about training. I went and I brutalized myself for like two days before my HRV didn't change. Ah, it's worthless. My first question is, well, what's your resting heart rate? They're like 37. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So when you're laying down, right, you're going to have the lowest resting heart rate you're going to get because your heart's not really working against gravity. You can see something in the literature called a parasympathetic saturation. It's debatable about how often it really happens and what level it kicks in. But when you're laying down and you're an endurance athlete like yourself, your resting heart rate is very low. So you're, you're under this high, high amount of parasympathetic tone. So any other stressors just don't really show up much in the measurement. Right? It'd be like sitting on the beach and you're trying to look for small waves and just big monster waves just keep coming all the time. Right? It's just washing everything out. You don't see it. So in those athletes, especially, they may have to do it seated or even standing. So if you think about the extreme case of standing, okay, now your heart really has to work against gravity. Your resting heart rate maybe goes from 37 to 44, somewhere in there. You're under a little bit more sympathetic stressor by the act of just keeping pressure standing. But because you're always measuring it in the standing in that same position first thing in the morning, over time, those things don't matter because it's the exact same condition all the time. And what you see is you drop some of that parasympathetic tone, and now these kind of other stressors will start to show up. So you'll see if they brutalize themselves in the gym or training the day before, you'll see HRV tends to you know, trend down a little bit more. You'll start to see these changes in the measurement. So I think that, again, going back to context, if you're just the you know, average general population happen to be listening to the show, I think HRV will kind of get you in the ballpark. Or if you do something crazy, like you go out to the bar and you have a bender, yeah, HRV will, will change in just about everybody. Um, but if you're a high-level athlete and you have a very low resting heart rate, especially you know dipping down near the 40s or below, you know, laying down, you're probably not going to see those other background stressors showing up. So you're probably going to need to do a single-point measurement in the morning. I use the iFleet system, either seated or standing, to get an idea of those other stressors to make the measurement more useful. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I mean, there's just, it's such a cool area of exploration because it's like, we can, you know, it's, uh, you know, now that you can track this stuff 24 seven, yeah. you get such a more complete picture versus just spot checking stuff. And, uh, it, it kind of leads me into the next area of interest, which is just 24 seven tracking in general. Cause now we're seeing that kind of appear with continuous glucose monitors and other, other areas of, of interest too, where, rather than saying, Hey, I'm going to get this snapshot. Uh, now blood markers are, are a little more available. Um, maybe, maybe let's start with like with glucose and like, is there a similar trend that you're seeing that will be valuable for just either performance or health in general with being able to track glucose response 24 seven, or is that potentially just focusing on something that is mostly irrelevant outside of a few data points and it can almost cause more harm than good because people start overthinking it then or yeah any data can cause harm with overthinking <laughs> no matter what the data is uh so one of the first questions i have with people is this happened with a client the other day he gets up he's like ah oh, my sleep score is horrible i don't feel good i'm like okay did you not feel good before you looked at the data or did you not feel good after you looked at the data 
-hmm. right? If you don't feel good after you looked at the data, now the data is influencing you probably in a negative way. And for some people, I'm like, just don't measure anything, right? Because I get some people that are hyper analytic when I start with them. They have like, you know, 40 pages of documents and this testing, that testing, and, you know, 24 hour HRV and all this stuff. And they have no idea what's going on, right? And it's almost impossible to try to pick everything out. And you find that they're very influenced of how they feel and perform just by looking at the data, right? So get up and be like, oh, my HRV is crap. Yep. Performance today, today is definitely going to suck. It's like, well, does it suck now because you think it's going to suck? Is it like a self-fulfilling prophecy you're stuck in? So for some people, I may actually paradoxically wean them off data and just look at performance or just some very, very simple outcomes. Uh, however, data itself can be useful. So if the system itself is tracking it as accurate, that's going to be the first thing. Is it reliable, repeatable? That's going to be the next thing. So if those things are good, and some of the continuous glucose monitors on that are, are pretty good, the caveat is that most of them are still designed for uh, diabetics. So if you start splitting hairs, like on the Libre Freestyle about the low end, I've seen people online being like, oh, my, my resting glucose went from 84 to 79. It's like, ah, yeah, I don't trust it at that low level, right? Um, but you're already low, so that's good, right? So I'm, I'm kind of happy with that. So you have to know what are the limits of the device you're using. In general, lower levels, not quite as accurate. Um, there's a little bit different in some of those because they're measuring interstitial versus blood glucose. So if you're pricking your finger and you're comparing it to a continuous glucose monitor, you can see a little bit of difference there, but they should trend you know, right around the same. So again, we're getting pretty good ballpark markers with that. With continuous glucose monitors in general, I like because it just sticks on your arm. Like I've had it done a couple of times. Uh, my wife did an experiment where early on, I wasn't sure how... I guess repeatable they were. So we stuck one on her left tricep and waited five minutes and stuck one on her right tricep. <laughs> and then we compared the two. And again, out of one experiment, but same human, they did tend to trend around the same, the same lines, which is good. So on those that I'm looking at is typical, like the Libre Freestyle will run for about two weeks. So the first week I tell athletes, I'm like, just, just do the same you've always been doing. You know, if possible, don't even look at the data till the end of that week, which now that you have handheld readers, it's almost impossible. Everyone like looks all the time, <laughs> um, but try to follow everything you would the same. And then we'll take that week and we'll kind of analyze it and see what's going on. The second week, that'll give us some idea of different things we should try. So I'm looking at the two ends of the spectrum, maybe some type of fasting period, right? Can you hold blood glucose pretty good during maybe even a longer fast? or some fasted low intensity training, rare, rare cases, fasted high intensity training. And then, okay, if we give you something like what I call the two Pop-Tart test, right? So have two Pop-Tarts for breakfast, see what happens. You know, 80 grams of glucose and a highly processed thing with frosting that's probably some type of ceramic hybrid of some form. Um, what happens, right? Can you tolerate that extreme end of a food that's probably nuclear proof with like 80 grams of you know, pure sugar? And if your blood glucose in U.S. units goes to like 200 or something, oof, okay, now I'm worried. And it takes like four hours to get back to baseline. You've got some problem on the right end of the spectrum related to carbohydrate metabolism. Now, again, you probably want to repeat that a couple of times because like acute sleep, 
uh, overreached, all those kind of high, high levels of fatigue, they can all kind of screw with that to some degree. But if it's repeatable, that's telling us that our ability to dispose of glucose, our sinks, are not working so well. If you get very, very symptomatic during a fast and your blood glucose just gets all kind of wonky or it just completely bottoms out, okay, now you probably have some issue on the other end trying to get other fuel systems to work a little bit better. So those two ends will give us a good approximation of where somebody is at. Um, within that, you can get even fancier like uh, Rob Wolf has talked about and you could test different types of carbohydrates, right? So stuff uh, from the Wiseman Institute and I've seen this in practice with um, some guys we had in my buddy Ben House's place in Costa Rica. Like some people could crush like pineapple and be perfectly fine. Other people could crush rice cakes, perfectly fine. Within those two, some people, pineapple would send their blood glucose sky high, rice cakes would be fine, right? You see some kind of just weird, weird things. Even when you're trying to somewhat control for the carbohydrate amount. Like I kind of understand rice cakes versus ice cream because you've got fat, you've got different components in it. Um, but even within very similar foods standardized to uh, almost a similar amount of fiber, almost a similar amount of carbohydrates, you just see different responses. So that kind of allows you that next level down of, okay, my blood glucose is always pretty good unless I eat, you know, rice cakes and bananas or whatever it is, right? So maybe I'll shy away from those for a period of time and then I'll come back and kind of retest them again. So I think like continuous glucose monitors is useful for, I like athletes to do it for about a two week experiment. I don't know about people wearing them like continuously all the time because I just get a little bit nervous about having way too much data coming in once you've kind of established what your baselines are and what uh, things are going on. Because you can, you could spend your whole day just accumulating data and it may be to your detriment, not to your benefit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you have too much of it and you don't know what to do with it, or when you collect so much that the number of variables that get introduced kind of clouds out what you're trying to look for, then it's yeah. like you basically lost it in the noise. And you know, the, the other interesting thing I wanted to ask you about that, when you mentioned those big spikes, like if you had something that you do the pop tart test and shot up to 200, obviously if that takes a long time to get down, that's, a pretty clear sign that there's a disposal issue. Uh, what's the difference between, or maybe I should ask this, is there a difference if someone has that big spike like that, but it drops right down back to baseline, like within an hour, is that telling us something differently? Probably. So what is it telling us differently? I'm not a hundred percent sure to be honest. Normally I'll see them pretty well correlated you will see very, very high levels. And then normally it takes a while to come back down. Um, there is some interesting stuff looking at uh, the cephalic release of insulin or kind of the first phase. So insulin release has a very short, short phase and a very long phase. The first phase is the, kind of called the cephalic release, which is controlled by primarily by the nervous system. And if you watch really closely and you're sampling with a pretty high frequency, you may catch a super high spike and then it just like kind of crashed back down into a normal range. Um, it's kind of hard to grab without a continuous glucose monitor or just pricking your finger endlessly, which is really annoying. <laughs> um, there's a blood test you can look at, however, which I got from Dr. Brian Walsh called Glycomark. What happens is if you have these high, high spikes and then they drop, you may not necessarily see it in your fasting blood glucose and you probably won't see it in like your HbA1c, right? Your kind of three month average of blood glucose. 
which again can be skewed in people like yourself, you know, high level endurance athletes, but it's an okay marker for a two to three month average because the spikes are so short lived. They don't really alter either one of those metrics. And a lot of times people may go hypoglycemic right after it. So if I have someone who they go into their doc, they're like, yeah, doc said all my numbers are fine. I don't really have any pathologies. I don't have anything going on, but I get really hypoglycemic at times. And I, I don't really know what's going on. I'd be like, yeah, probably get a glycomark test and see if that's normal or abnormal. Right. If it's abnormal, that probably tells us you're having these high, high spikes and it's dropping because it changes this little protein that can be picked up um, on a blood test. There are some caveats if you're on a low carb diet or a ketogenic diet or things like that. But in general, it can be picked up by that blood test. But that may tell us that your glycemic variability is really wonky, right? That you, your average is not skewed enough. Your, your other uh, fasting and your three month average are not skewed enough. But in between, your blood glucose is kind of going all over the mark. Um, so continuous blood glucose monitor in that case might be super useful. Uh, do some testing over that kind of normal week and see what we find if it's just kind of going all over or if it's more constant. Uh, Glycomark is a blood test that can kind of tell you that. Uh, so we did this with my wife. Uh, it turns out that her uh, glycomark was a little bit wonky. So we did a continuous uh, blood glucose test after that. Um, so those are some things to look for. We do know that glycemic variability is a, a risk factor for uh, disease and is not really a marker uh, for health. Uh, so glycomark may be a simple blood test. It's 40, 80 bucks, something like that. Uh, pretty inexpensive. So for me, like if I'm thinking about kind of an algorithm for people that are healthy, I'm like, yeah, go back, ask your doc for a glycomark test. If it's abnormal, yeah, then you probably want to consider a continuous glucose monitor to see what's going on. If you still want to do a CGM just for curiosity, you know, that, that's fine too. You may find out some interesting stuff from there. Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped balanced cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. Eggweights is offering 15% off their running form, strength work, and recovery products. Finally, Purpose Performance Wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel, including my own signature series. So head over to zackbitter.com forward slash mygear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more. All right, folks, now back to the show. Interesting. And I, I want to follow this up with one final question with yeah. that. And it's, let's say you're in the, you're in that, that group or that cohort where you get those big spikes and then a four hour kind of like residual higher than average, you know, time frame to kind of bring that back down is what's the next step then I'm guessing it's like some sort of analysis of what they're eating and that might dra drive the next, the next, uh, um, possible solution or is there, cause the way I see this and I could be way off here, but I kind of think there's maybe like the same problem with both ends of the spectrum where let's say you go like strict keto or zero carb and you do that for like, say a year and you do the pop tart test. 
are you going to see like some crazy numbers just because your body is essentially downregulated its ability to really like deal with that type of a load from a carbohydrate source versus say someone who's chronically high carbohydrate and their blood glucose is off the charts because of that. Is there like different approaches for those different individuals or is it something where it's like, just stay away from the extreme extremes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, it's the, the, the first question I would ask them is, okay, what's your background? Like, what are you doing? Right. So if they come to me and they say, oh, I've been doing a ketogenic diet, like pretty hardcore measuring my ketones for six months. Oh, okay. That's different than, you know, my butt looks like a couch cushion and I live on, you know, Mountain Dew all day and Pop-Tarts. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you could in theory see very similar quote test results from those two populations, but you're dealing with two completely different physiologies altogether. So the first time, ironically, I did the continuous glucose monitor test was in Minnesota. We had a nurse do it with a group of us. It was probably four of us. And at the time, we didn't have any of the readers. So you kind of log everything. We couldn't see any of the data for two weeks. Comes back, pulls all the data. And she's like, is it okay if you know everyone kind of shares their data in a group setting? We're all like, yeah, that's cool. So we're going around the table. And one person in the group who had done you know pretty hardcore ketogenic type diet for quite a while, uh, she's like, hey, you're you know, your blood glucose here is like, you know, 135, 140, you know, what did you have to eat at that time? She's like, oh, I had, you know, half of some almond wrap or something like that. And like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Not too many carbohydrates, but higher than what she would normally have. And so she was kind of upset about, <laughs> about this. So she looks at me and she goes, well, what did you have for breakfast that day? And I'm like, I don't know. So I look at my log. I'm like, oh, this is week two. So crazy testing. Uh, two pop tarts and two cookies. <laughs> and she's like, well, what was your blood glucose? I'm like 121. <laughs> but in general, my diet was a little bit, you know, higher amounts of carbohydrates, you know, more exercise. So to your point, if you are in a hardcore ketogenic type diet, if we think about what's going on, right, your brain says, okay, uh, as, as much as it's been disputed, your brain still likes the glucose, probably even over ketones. Now, if you have like a traumatic brain injury, you've got some pathology that may change because in a TBI, like glucose metabolism gets knocked offline. So ketones can replace that. Um, but it can definitely use ketones for fuel if they're around, but it would still prefer glucose if it could. So your brain's going to be like, Hey, any circulating glucose, I want the glucose first, and then I'll use ketones. So muscles, you you get to use ketones. So how would it do that? It would change your insulin resistance would say, okay, if we change insulin resistance locally at the muscle, we can use lower levels of insulin, but that's going to preferentially allow more glucose up to the brain. So at the muscle level, you can have what's called a non-pathological insulin resistance at the muscle level, which is a bunch of crazy words that means, yes, your muscle is not taking up as much glucose as it normally would. However, because there's just not much glucose floating around, normally your insulin levels, your C-peptide levels are all super low. It's not a frank pathology, meaning it's not really an issue. As you know, right, people have been on ketogenic diets for a long, long time. In general, we don't really see hardly any issues with them. Now, the caveat is if you take that person and then all of a sudden, wham, you slam them with like 80 grams of glucose, that doesn't change within like a couple seconds right? You're going to probably see those very high rises and it's going to take them a while to come back down. Now in that context, 
probably not anything to worry about unless you're one of these people who decides, okay, screw a ketogenic diet. I'm just going to go on a carb bender for the next month. Maybe not the best idea. Probably having a nice little transition area in there is probably going to be helpful. Um, again, if you're on the other end of the spectrum where you're more unhealthy, you don't do a lot of exercise, you're eating a very, very high processed, high carbohydrate diet. Now you actually have a problem where the muscles like, whoa, hold on. Like we're being all destroyed in here because everything's just not working the way that it should. You know, it'd be like having a huge party at your house. And I mean, like 30 more people outside show up at the door and be like, Hey, we're coming in. They're like, no, our place is already trashed enough. Like stay the hell out of the house. Right. So at some point your muscle is going to be like, screw this, like stay out. We've got problems with glucose in here already. We don't want any more. The liver can say the same thing. So your ability to kind of dispose of it is an issue. Now, again, they both look very similar, but the pathology that underlines it is completely different. And then it gets way more complicated than that because there's more than just glucose and insulin and a bunch of other hormones um, going on, which goes back to knowing the context, which I like your question of which kind of area are you in, right? Because, you know, the one area, yeah, your testing is quote abnormal, but if you're not doing a diet that has a high amount of carbohydrates in it, you probably don't really have to worry that much. On the other hand, you probably should be pretty concerned. And most likely on the other hand, your fasting blood glucose is probably gonna be higher. Your A1C is probably gonna be higher. If we measured insulin or like C-peptide, which is a little bit more longer duration surrogate for insulin, those are probably gonna be elevated also. So we're gonna be able to see some other markers that says, yeah, this is definitely not very good. And in the ketogenic state, insulin is going to be usually very, very low. C-peptide is going to be low. So you'll have other markers in context to say, okay, yeah, you're, you're probably, you know, doing okay on this end. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you think of it that way. And you, I was just some ideas popped or thoughts popped in my head as you were kind of describing that. And one was just when folks are either transitioning to like, say, a ketogenic diet, it seems like there's, there's just a little bit of a longer adaptation period if folks had kind of come from a background of being maybe a little more fat phobic or if they followed like very low fat diets is that kind of because of you're doing kind of what you were saying where most people aren't going to say well you know i've been very high carbohydrate for a couple of years maybe i should go to moderate carb for a while and then get down to low carb and then keto and kind of take it as like a, a slightly downward sloping staircase versus jumping from the top of the staircase uh is that something that pans out or is there like, is it still, if someone is like in that boat, is it better to, I guess, go cold Turkey and say, all right, I'm going to go. I mean, assuming that's what they want to do anyway. Um, obviously if someone's moderate high carb and they're feeling great and doing well that way, there's, you know, you've got to ask what's the point at, at a, to a certain degree, right. but um, yeah. Is there, is there a, a preferred route in most cases with that type of stuff that you've been able to tease out? So I would say from, going from a high carb to a keto diet depends on the reason why they're doing it and what is the the risk, right? So if they said, Hey, you know, I'm doing this under the, the guise of my physician and I'm a just uncontrolled type two diabetic. And my doc says he's going to supervise me to do a ketogenic approach. Yeah. That's probably a little bit more on the cold Turkey side, probably going to be a harder transition, but you could argue you're doing so much damage on the other side, then it's probably kind of worth that quote unquote risk. 
If you're a healthy person and you're just like doing it for shits and giggles, eh, I would say a more moderate approach is going to be better, right? Because you want kind of time to uh, transition, you know, your insulin levels, your glucose may be a little bit kind of wonky. A lot of it depends upon, you know, how well are you using fat at rest and during low intensity, moderate exercise. You know, that's a lot more variable than what people realize. Um, I did a study on that. Gadecki did a study. Uh, Hell just did a study in 1999, showing that how well people use fat, uh, low to moderate intensity exercise, overnight fasted, varies from like 23 to 93%, right? Some people are really, really good at it. Some people are just horrible at it. And these are recreationally healthy, quote unquote, people. So if you're on that low end of the fat oxidation spectrum, doing some fasted training, you know, training your body to use fat more as a fuel, I think is going to make your uh, transition into a ketogenic diet uh, a lot better. Again, for myself, if, you know, I've done fasting and done some other stuff enough that I could transition harder if I had to. So for me personally, I even carry like little ketone esters in my bag for kiteboarding. So I'm like, if I'm 20, 30 feet up in the air and I screw up and get dropped on my head and, you know, I think I have maybe a TBI before I can get a formal diagnosis. For me personally, I'm going to put myself in ketosis at a pretty high level as fast as I can, because I, I believe that the risk of not doing that may outweigh doing a very, very hard transition. Again, that's not necessarily medical advice. That's just what I would do personally. I do think there is some advantage, although the research is limited, on uh, ketones being a better fuel uh, post-TBI. Again, that's probably debatable, but that's what I would do personally. So I think it goes back to what is the reason you're doing? What is the risk of not doing it? Um, In my case, I know that if I do a ketogenic approach, I'm pretty safe that there's probably not much of a downside, right? I've, I'm pretty convinced that, yeah, I'm probably not going to do anything harm. How much benefit would I have, you know, post getting dropped on my head? Yeah, I don't know, but I don't think I'm going to do anything on the negative downside. So I'll hedge my bet and kind of hope that the upside is a little bit better. Um, if I'm just doing it for, you know, eh, I think it might be interesting. The times I have done it, I've done much better by doing a more gradual approach. Um, over time, I have played with the the faster transition with myself and a few athletes. And you can go from high amount of fat use to high amount of carbohydrate use. You can get those pretty darn good. But what I've seen is unless you're someone like yourself who uh, has an ketogenic approach for quite a long time, man, trying to go from moderately higher carbs to like hardcore, like keto, and those transitions still seem to be pretty hard. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. I mean, to go from a normal high carb diet into ketosis, the fastest way without using supplements is probably some form of exercise, deplete the crap out of glycogen and then just fast and then just start having a ton of fat. (laughs) And you're probably going to feel like poo when you do that. But, you know, I think that's probably a faster way to get there. Again, assuming you're a healthy person and your body's ability to use fat is relatively high. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know of any tricks to do those transitions faster, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, from what I've seen anyway, you're, you're spot on where it comes down a lot to the individual and kind of what the context of the situation is. I think for, for me personally, I would consider my transition really smooth. I think it was like three to four weeks where 
I mean, first of all, I was, I, I knew just enough at the time to know that it was probably a bad idea to throw it in during the middle of a training block. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I went to, yeah, I went into the end of my racing season where I had a month plus to kind of just like, you know, I was going to do some running, but none of it was going to be structured and none of it was going to be anything above like aerobic threshold. Yeah. And, you know, if I wanted to stop early, I had that, that flexibility and, and the biggest thing I noticed really was it seemed like a bit of a coin flip as to whether my pace was going to really suffer. So I'd go mm -hmm. out for an easy run and, you know, some days it would be kind of right at the pace I'd expect at the intensity and other days it'd be like a minute or two per mile slower. And I oh, had, wow. no, yeah, I had no really like any real uh, knowledge of why it happened that way. But like after about a month that that kind of normalized, then it was all just where, where it normally had been at that intensity. And it wasn't until I started interjecting more stuff at a moderate and high intensity that I recognized strict ketogenic is probably not going to be the big performance mover for me personally. Uh, even if just so to get through certain training blocks, like, you know, the, the biggest piece of confusion, I think with what I'm doing is people always want to look at the race intensity and in isolation when in reality, right. you know, there's, there's steps along the way that don't always look like they belong there that do belong there, like short intervals. I'm just going to be doing them at a different time during the season than say a 5k, 10k athlete. So it's like that phase of my training, um, just because my race intensity might be low enough to be pretty close to strict ketogenic at times, you know, it's some of the sessions I'm going to do to prepare for that may not necessarily bear, bear fruit at a strict ketogenic level. So like teasing out, what level of carbohydrates do I need to execute certain workouts and when to time them and things like that was kind of that next piece. But the transition was pretty smooth. I mean, a lot of times the question I always ask folks is like, well, what are you, what are, what are we trying to do here? And if, you know, they're mid season and they want to, they want to play around with a dietary intervention from a moderate high carb down to a lower carb. Um, I can't think of a scenario in which I would recommend a strict ketogenic diet in that case, unless maybe they're training for like a, 48 hour race or maybe a 24 yeah. hour race or something like that. Especially if you have to carry all your own shit with you or some right. adventure race like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So again, context is going to be the the driver for all of it, but, but uh, yeah, you know, if, uh, if they're mid season and they're convinced that the, if they continue at where they're at, they're off the rails already and they're going to make some sort of intervention, I usually just say, well, let's bring you down to more of a mo or more of a low carbohydrate versus full on like strict ketogenic and say like, well, let's see you're eating 60, 70% carbohydrate. Now let's just bring it down to say 30 to 40 or something like that. And just see if we can move the needle a little bit on that without necessarily completely tanking your, your performance as you're trying to adapt at the same time as execute key workouts and things like that. But, um, you know, there's always, there's always the odd individual who, who bucks the trend too. like, I'll have uh, an athlete every once in a while who uh, stays pretty strict ketogenic throughout the season. And I'll throw workouts at him thinking, this is going to be the one that brings, makes them bring the cars back. <laughs> <laughs> and then they don't for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you can always argue like, well, what if you would have, maybe you go a second or two faster on those right. quarter repeats. And, you know, it, ultimately it's like, yeah, yeah, it depends. Like, are you in range of hitting the workout to make the adaptations? Cause obviously, and when you're talking about hundred mile racing and things like that, whether you're a second or two faster in your quarter repeats is probably not going to move yeah. the needle on your race day <laughs> the way it would perhaps for like a 1500 meter or 5,000 meter runner or something like that. 
Yeah. And you can obviously drop in, you know, like I'm a big fan of dropping in fasted training. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, you're done with carbohydrates. Maybe at noon, you're just going to have some protein and veggies at dinner. And then you're going to get up and do some zone two, zone three stuff in the morning. Right. So I'm not really purposely dropping muscle glycogen all that much, maybe a little bit, uh, but liver glycogen is going to be really low. Insulin is going to be low. That's going to upregulate your body to use more fat as a percentage of fuel, assuming it's not high intensity. Right. And then you get into the whole, you know, sleep low, train high and all the different, you know, high carb, low carb, you know, things where now you may want to purposely deplete muscle glycogen on top of it and then do some other work after that. And, you know, the research on that is really split, like almost 50, 50, you know, Marquette showed some pretty big improvements, you know, other researchers haven't, um, but people forget about that training too, is that if you've ever done it, it just sucks. It's horrible. Uh, your performance acutely will drop, but do those adaptations then make up for it when you get back to normal training? I, I don't know what I've seen. Some people do really well with that. Other people just, didn't help them at all. And I lost two weeks <laughs> of their training. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I was that, that is a, an interesting conversation. And I've, I've seen a variety of different things. I, when I had Alan cousins on the show, mm. he talked about a specific athlete he was working with where I believe if I remember correctly, the athlete was a moderate carb consumer and they looked at his fat oxidation rates and decided there was some reason to try to improve those a bit from a, just a race fueling type mm-hmm. of stretch just to make sure you could get in the fuel he was going to yeah, require. Yeah. And they, he, the, the particular athlete wasn't super inclined in reducing their carbohydrate consumption uh, from a gram total. So they just shifted it. Like I think mm-hmm. they, they backloaded his carbohydrates and retested and noticed that they, that he actually moved into the, the range of fat oxidation they were trying to target that put him in a spot where the amount of fueling he was able to get away with on race day was matching what his, his uh, metabolic ratios were showing on the test. And, and, you know, he didn't actually reduce his carbohydrates at all. He moved the needle on that. And then I think of myself too. And I think some, perhaps one of the reasons I may have transitioned a little smoother than some is there's maybe a couple things I never quite went to the extreme where I was like super high carbohydrate and was avoiding fat at all costs. Um, I also had done a lot of my long runs relatively fast, if not completely mm. fasted, even when I was moderate yeah. carbohydrate. Yeah. So, you know, I may have accidentally, I wasn't doing that necessarily intentionally. It was more just like when I'd wake up in the morning and was going to get a run in, you know, I just didn't feel like stuffing myself with food before yeah. going out. <laughs> and, and it was just easier to, you know, have, you know, I'd have a, if you kept maybe a hundred, 200 calories tops with like a cup of coffee or something like that, but it was not enough to really like, you know, restock glycogen or anything like that. Right. So I'm sure I was, I was burning pretty decent levels of fat just from the training side of things. But, but then, you know, there's also, you know, when you look at the faster study, we, we, it's pretty, I think if we learn something from that study, it's at these lower intensity, longer efforts, uh, the training effect is one thing. The dietary effect is a whole nother level that you can achieve. And then the question just becomes, do you need to? And if right. you do, so perhaps maybe the way we should be looking at this is like training stimulus. Let's see where we get with that. And if there's still work to be done, now we do the dietary uh, interventions. And, and, and then, then it kind of comes back to what you were saying, where you get this wide range of, uh, you know, efficiency with the training stimulus from, what did you say it was like from between 20% and 90%? Yeah, they tested people as about 23 to 93% variability 
right? So if you're 93% or 23%, right? Some people are really, really good at using fat. Some people are not. And these were all uh, baseline VO2 max and then done as a percentage of each individual's VO2 max. So in theory, all of them should be working at the same relative percentage of their performance. And even then you see that they use completely different fuel sources to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I know like one of the, the conversations in ultra running with folks who are interested at all in fat adaptation is around, uh, there's one of, one of the top athletes in sport, Killian Journey. He's very much moderate, if not high carbohydrate. And he's, but he's had these just, just massive projects where he's running essentially all day or huge portions of the day. And he's fueling at or below the rate at which I would normally do. And, you know, like, so it's kind of a little bit of a, you know, he's, he's probably just really good at fat metabolization via whatever the training stimulus he's done historically. Um, or the other thing I was like, he's also got a freakishly huge engine. I think his VO two max is like in the low nineties or something like Whoa. that. High eighties. So it's it crazy. It could also be that his, his engine is so much larger than mine. Right. That like he's more sub max, relatively speaking. Exactly. Yeah. So if I were just to, if I were just to shadow him on a run, I'd be in like a whole nother system of intensity than he would. Therefore our fat oxidation rates may match at the same pace, but it wouldn't necessarily be the same intensity. Um, and then you'd have to like tease out a whole bunch of other stuff from a performance side to see what happens at the end of a long effort. But, um, but yeah, it's just really interesting stuff where, you know, you almost, at the end of the day, it becomes an individual question, I think more so than just like, well, everyone should be following this type of a dietary structure for this type of a sport. And that's where it gets interesting for me anyway. Yeah. And that's what's so hard too, as you know, that even if we say, okay, yeah, you need a lot of carbohydrates because you have to work at a higher percentage, then you run into logistical issues, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oops, I missed the station. Oops, they don't have the right mixture. Oops, they mixed it wrong. Oops, my electrolytes are off. My fluid intake is off. Oh, now my stomach feels like it wants to revolt against me. And, you know, so I think there are some downsides to potentially carbohydrates from, I'd say almost more of a logistics type side too. You know, and if you're one of those athletes where it doesn't matter, like you can take in anything related to a carbohydrate with fluid, no fluid, electrolytes, not many, whatever, and you never have GI upset, then yeah, it's going to be easier for you just to slam a whole bunch of carbohydrates. You know, if you're someone who, for whatever reason, is more sensitive to that, now you've got this smaller band that you kind of have to operate in. And if you something happens and you're not within that area, you pay a higher cost. And if you can't shift into using a high percentage of fat, you know, you're probably kind of hosed then, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's one thing to look at the physiology and it's easy for me to say, well, you know, if you're going super, you know, fast, let's say a marathon, you know, you're trying to break a two hour marathon, then yeah, you're going to need a ton of carbohydrates. That's probably true physiology, but if you talk to an average racer and someone who's maybe not the elite of the elite, you're not running as fast as breaking a two hour marathon. So you probably have a little bit more leeway, but now you're into the whole logistical argument of, you know, do you want to be using hundred percent carbohydrates? Right. So if I see a testing on a metabolic that shows, yeah, you're one of those people using almost all carbohydrates, even though you're not super fast, that makes me nervous from a long-term health standpoint. And just, if anything goes awry, you have no backup real fuel to use. So I think for most athletes getting your fat oxidation as high as you possibly can 
However, if you're doing shorter-ish races, you probably don't want to compromise carbohydrate oxidation on that high end either, right? You want to have this kind of fast transition to being able to use carbohydrates and the whole discussion about carbohydrates aerobically are more efficient by a few percentage and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think all of it, like you said, matters. And again, the context of, are you doing a 48 hour race, a hundred mile or a marathon, you know, that to outside people, they're like, I don't know, they're all just super long, but you know, that's a pretty massive difference between those three different events too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think where it, the entry point is oftentimes, well, do you need carbohydrates for endurance? And then it's like, that, yeah, <laughs> that merits, that merits a massive follow-up question when we're talking about what endurance event we're, we're referring to at that point in time. Yeah. And, and then, then do you want to win, right? right. Or you, do you legitimately have a shot at being one of the, the fastest people? If you do, then that's a completely different argument than I just want to finish my first marathon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and then it's like you, you get into these topics like training your gut and things like that. It's yep. like it, what is required in order to actually train your gut to tolerate like those excessive 60 grams per hour. And, you know, you get an elite athlete who's training 15, 20 hours a week. And yeah, maybe you have the, the, I guess the energy balance to justify an extra thousand calories a day of like straight refined carbohydrate (laughs) to train your gut. But then, yeah, you get the average person who's going to, you know, maybe put in 40, 50 miles or like five to 10 hours a week of training, you know, even in their peak, while they're working a full-time job and yep. taking care of their family and everything, like they may not want to invest that big chunk of their, their energy intake into something that's going to allow them to, to mainline, you know, sport supplement after sport supplement on race day. Uh, even if it means they may lose a couple minutes on the back end from a performance standpoint. Uh, and then, you know, obviously there's other variables to that too, especially when you're, you're talking about the average person versus someone whose entire life is revolved around this particular event uh, as to like, you know, whether it actually will induce a two or three minute performance benefit when, when you weigh in, you know, bathroom stops, digestive issues and things like that. And it, it becomes, it becomes very, very complex, I think at, at a certain point. Um, but yeah, I had a question in there, I guess <laughs> it was, a it was basically, uh, I mean, you can comment on what I said if you want to, but, uh, I, my, my question kind of was going to be in the, in the realm of, just uh, the, if, if you do find yourself in a position where you're, you're, you're doing like a, the super high carbohydrate side of things and, and then, uh, you know, race day comes up, is there, is there any indication that like, or I guess I'm asking this question a little bit backwards. If you're doing it, uh, if you're, if you're doing like a lower carbohydrate diet, is there a kind of entrance point that you normally recommend for folks that are training for say like a marathon in, in terms of where their baseline is going to be to target on like a daily basis, or is it going to be like very individual to like the day of the work or the workout, uh, the, the phase of the season and things like that, or, uh, how does that differentiate, I guess, between just the average person who's maybe not training for endurance sport? Yeah. Let me know if this answers your question. If I can get performance testing on them, right? So I have a a PNOE device. I've got a Moxie set up. So if I can test them here, then that'll give me some baseline data, especially of performance, uh, ventilatory stuff, RER, all that kind of stuff. If I don't have that and it's more online, 
Uh, most athletes I work with are more speed and power, CrossFit, lifting, that kind of stuff. Um, but I have worked with a few more endurance athletes. It, and even across all the athletes I've worked with, like carbohydrate amounts vary by far way more than protein and fat. You know, it just doesn't even seem to matter as much what sport. I mean, the only caveat is, yeah, if you're going to compete and do a triathlon, you're probably going to have a lot more carbs than most other people just because of the work, there's the training volume that's involved. Outside of that, I just, if I don't have any testing, I just start super simple. I'm just like, okay, what's your baseline? Give me seven days. Don't change anything. Don't try to impress me. Just give me seven days of your nutrition, log everything and log your training and log your performance, right? Now, Friggin' buy you a GPS watch if that's what you need, right? <laughs> and then from there, you're, I'll have them do daily body weight. So I have an idea of their body weight and then I'll have an idea of their performance. And then if I think they're on the lower end, which most people probably are, then I'm just going to slowly keep titrating up carbohydrates. I'm going to watch body weight and I'm going to watch performance. And at some point, you're just going to hit a point where you're not increasing as fast as what we would expect. And maybe your body weight starts to, you know, spike up higher. Your RPE doesn't seem to change. And then that's probably about where we're going to be as just a, a day to day. Uh, once we hit that point, then it gets a little bit tricky and you can get kind of fancier like we talked about. Maybe you need more zone two, zone three work. I'm probably going to have you do that fasted you know, higher intensity work, we're probably going to have you do that fed. Um, I will generally use more periods of fasting. I don't tend to use a lot of ketogenic phases per se, unless it's like an adventure race or something like that, just because I know that PDH enzyme is going to change a little bit. And if we just give you a massive amount of carbohydrates right away, you probably won't use them as well, but I can take someone and have zero carbohydrates, do a 24 hour fast, have them do lower intensity training and I can hit them with like 400 grams of carbohydrates the next day, like no problem. So I use fasting a little bit more acutely than I would use like a ketogenic type phase. Um, again, all depends on the athlete, what they're trying to do. And then from there, you're just always kind of tweaking, watching body weight, RPE, heart rate variability. What is your cost and what is your performance? And, you know, a lot of it then comes down to psychological factors. You know, some people, like you said, have a job, have a family on top of it. Yeah, you're probably not going to do a lot of super crazy fancy stuff if they're like just a mid-level athlete. You know, even maybe a high-end athlete, they maybe just don't have the the psychological bandwidth to pull it off and it just stresses them out. Their HRV plummets and eh, their performance in the end was actually worse. Um, so I think it just gets kind of tricky once you get people up to baseline. But most people just getting them up to baseline, you'll see a pretty big jump in performance because I tend to see people just across the board of all athletes tend to more underfuel than overfuel for the most part. The only exception there would be people who are just, you know, starting where they just can't tolerate much volume of work. Yeah. They're probably on the other end of the spectrum, but once you can tolerate a fair volume of want of work just across the board, it most people I find just tend to underfuel. Mm. Yeah. You know, on the fueling in general, this is maybe a little more of a macro look at that is when you're working with athletes, are you seeing like metabolic adaptations occurring in a big enough manner where you're adjusting some of the quantities as they get more fit or are the folks that are coming to you basically kind of at that point where their body's maybe more or less adapted to that lifestyle already? 
um, in terms of like changing calories or macros or? Yeah, I guess the way I'm maybe looking at it is like, if I've never been a runner and I start running, chances are like that entrance point, I'm just, it's going to take more energy for my body to kind of learn and to get efficient. Yeah, lower efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I could be wrong on this, but my, my assumption would be a lot of the down regulation would probably be outside of the workout itself where your body just gets more efficient with like some of the uncontrollable things like rate of blinking, twitching and things like that, where you yeah. maybe see a, a drop in their energy expenditure as they adapt, uh, as well as just probably getting more efficient at just the mechanics of the activity and things like that too. But uh, do, do you notice that much with the folks you're working with and have to play around with that? Or is it such a small degree that it's like, it, there's going to be enough kind of margin of error within any calculation anyway, that it's not worth kind of worrying about. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the carbohydrate variability comes in, right? Cause you're absolutely correct that, you know, if someone just takes up running eh, they're just not going to be super efficient. Right. And over time, hopefully they get good instruction. They become more efficient. So for the volume that they're doing, the amount of sheer food that they need is going to change. Now, the hard part is increasing calories changes, like you said, a whole bunch of different things. Maybe their sleep finally gets better because they can, you know, they're not in such a severe caloric deficit. Their stress level goes down because they're not being underfed. Their energy availability is better. Um, We know NEAT, right? So non-exercise activity thermogenesis how much you spontaneously walk around, twitch, like you said, blink, all those things, massive variability on that, right? Lavina Mayo did a study many years ago where they overfed people by a thousand calories per day. So they came in eight week study. They said, okay, all you people, not necessarily high-end athletes at all, just kind of recreational people. We're gonna give you a thousand calories every day. At the end of the study, like a couple of people gained, I think it was like 12 or 10 pounds and then a couple of people had gained literally like two pounds. You're like, well, well wait a minute. Like we, we overfed you a thousand calories. We verified that you were in a caloric surplus of a thousand extra calories. But what they didn't change was exercise. They said, just do the same exercise. And what they found was some people just massively upregulated their NEAT and other people just it did not change at all. Right. So on one end of the spectrum, you've got Bob who's eating a thousand extra calories a day and his butt still looks like a couch cushion, never got up to even check the mail once. On the other end, you've got Karen or whoever else is like running around everywhere unconsciously and doesn't realize that they just started spontaneously moving all the time and twitching and blinking. And so you've got one end that didn't move, one end that did. The crazy part is that a lot of that is actually unconscious. So you can't necessarily ask someone, did you really move more or less? Because they can't really tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll try to get an proxy of it by looking at step count. If they've got like a watch that'll track it. And if I see someone all of a sudden goes from like, you know, 5,000 steps a day to like 12,000 steps a day, and I can't figure out why we can't get in a caloric surplus, I'm thinking, okay, they're one of these people where we just feed them more and they just keep doing it off, right? <laughs> to that end, I asked John Brardy this once years ago. I said, what do I do with these like, you know, hard gainers where it seems like we just keep feeding them more food and they can't gain any weight? He's like, just give them more food because at some point they will outeat their metabolism. <laughs> Um, so with those people, that's exactly what I do. And they may upregulate by like, you know, 1500 calories from when we start to when we ended, and they may have even made freaking body weight neutral, right? It doesn't mean that calories in calories out doesn't work, which is they've upregulated so much along the way that it kind of obliterates that caloric difference. 
And mm -hmm. if I were to guess, I think the, the neat component is probably higher in most people than the changes in efficiency. And we know that changes in efficiency definitely happen, but unless you get up from, but when you start and you see those changes by definition, they're normally at very, very low volumes of training. So in terms of the big picture, it probably doesn't make as big of a difference. You know, someone like you and we said we could magically change your efficiency, that's probably going to be a pretty big difference. Uh, but to someone starting, their volumes usually aren't just high enough. But I think the neat component is probably where we're seeing uh, the biggest change. The hard part is when you're training with someone online, you maybe kind of know, like I said, by looking at step count, but it's really hard to quantify otherwise, which is why I like having a daily body weight. So I can see his body weight trending up or down. If body weight's trending absolutely flat neutral, performance is going up. I just, I just keep eating more food. That <laughs> mm -hmm. it is really interesting because uh, I'll notice this sometimes in my own, like I have a, I guess a unique look at this because I might be training, like I said, or like 20 hours a week. And then I finish a yeah. race and I might not train a single hour in a week. So there's like these massive barriers. huge differences yeah yeah and the, the interesting thing i find is like after like i mean obviously if i run a 100 mile race there's a few days where i'm just basically useless but uh and i'm not gonna I'm glad to know it. you're human <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then eventually i get to the point where like the skeletal muscle system is kind of bounced back i've caught back up on sleep and i'm generally capable of doing like you know basic you know low intensity type stuff like just you know chores around the house for example and a lot of times i find during that kind of part of my year, like I'm not necessarily, I'm definitely reducing my energy intake, but not to maybe an appreciable amount where I would expect not to start gaining a ton of weight. And it, like almost by default, I never like gain a ton of weight more than maybe a, a pound or two in an off season, which I, I, I typically like to do. Um, but uh, the, the thing I think is interesting is because I think a lot of times people are thinking of this, like if I replace a three hour run with just an extra three hours laying in bed, that's one thing versus replacing that three hour run versus deciding to like clean out the garage and right. the kitchen and everything, you know, yeah. do laundry and all that stuff. Now all of a sudden I, I introduced another activity that is going to expend some energy, just maybe not to the degree I would have, if I went out and ran that entire time, but it's not a complete, like uh, you know, all or nothing proposition. Yeah. And even resting metabolic rate, depending on what you look at 50 to maybe 60% of calories burned. I mean, an average people, not like yourself, Neat is way higher than formal exercise, you know, by probably a factor of two or three in some cases. Um, and I think those are things that people tend to forget. And I, I, there's some data to support this. And I tend to believe this, that the more movement and exercise and just neat and exercise that you do, I think as long as you're a healthy individual, you'll probably regulate, regulate calories in calories out much tighter. Uh, we do know that exercise does some very interesting stuff with those circuits in the brain related to appetite. Um, the people I get the most worried about from body comp standpoint are people who claim to be like legitimately weight neutral, at like 1300 calories, don't do a lot of exercise, walk like 5,000 steps a day. On one hand, I'm like, this may be easy if we can get you to do those things. You can probably regulate pretty well. On the other hand, I'm like, ooh, like if we release you into the free world, like it's so easy for you to overeat just mm -hmm. because you you're just at such a super low level to start with. Yeah. 1300 calories sounds like post-morning workout breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> that's like my second meal, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah, I don't, I, that, that stuff is, uh, 
I mean, for what you look at it in a couple different ways, it's like, if you're sticking to 1300 calories, I think even sedentary, like that's some willpower. If you can stick to that, if, if at least it'd be for me. So yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So let's channel that willpower somewhere else perhaps though. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, you see all all sorts of stuff. And then you get in debates about, well, are they really at 1300 calories? Right. I mean, that's most of the time that they log. Maybe they didn't log other things. And, you know, again, if unless you're going to throw them into a metabolic ward or chamber for how many days, yeah, you, you're, you're limited in what you can do with them, you know, from a measurement standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, Dr. Mike, anything else you want to chat about? You've been super generous with your time with me today, but I want to make sure that if there's anything you want to chat about, we, we cover it. Yeah. I mean, only last thing would be semi-related is a little bit about like cold and heat exposure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's some super interesting stuff with that. I mean, I think I'm a fan of, of both of them, but again, it goes back to the context and what are you doing it for? Um, I think in general heat, doesn't appear to have any counter regulatory effects upon exercise um, in untrained individuals. Like you can see pretty big changes in cardiovascular improvement just from exposure to heat in athletes, not so much because they're already much more trained. Um, however, in athletes, like if you're, as you know, like if you're going to run in a hot environment and you haven't practiced in a hot environment and you're not acclimated to it, oof, it's going to suck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's probably going to cost you, you know, performance. So I think it can be beneficial there. Um, cold, like cold water immersion is a little bit different. There is some stuff that if your goal is all out, you know, hundred percent hypertrophy, adding as much muscle as humanly possible, you probably don't want to do 10 to 12 minutes at 50 degrees immediately after training outside of those parameters though, it gets really fuzzy. You know, if you did a couple minutes, like two hours after training, we don't really have any idea at that point. Uh, cold water immersion may help with performance in terms of vertical jump and some other things, but I would say the data on that is, is still also relatively mixed. Um, there's some interesting mechanistic stuff on a cold water immersion post aerobic exercise, like upregulation of PGC one alpha and some other things. We don't really entirely know how much that translates into performance or not though. Um, so in general, I would say for athletes, you know, you're pretty safe to do some sort of heat exposure after exercise. Um, if anything, there may be beneficial by other regulatory pathways, depending upon your level as an athlete, the lower level athlete you are, you're probably going to see more benefit from it, uh, from, you know, blood volume, heat shock, protein upregulation, things like that. Higher level athletes, maybe, maybe not, but a lot of times it's a way to get into a parasympathetic state immediately after a hard training session too. So I think as we talked about transitions a little bit, I think it's going to be beneficial. Uh, it is beneficial if you're going to have to race or perform in a hot environment, right? It can help with acclimation related to that. Um, so again, I think both are useful because humans are homeotherms, right? We like our temperature at 98.6. And I think the more we can get exposure to very cold and very hot, as long as we stay within safe parameters, I think from a health perspective, that's going to be beneficial. Uh, I do think it can probably help from performance, but the caveat there is that all those things are stressors too. So at some point, if you, I've seen this with a couple of clients, they've just gone ape shit into like, you know, cold and hot all at once. Their HRV is tanking, nothing else has changed and the performance starts dropping and we can't figure out what the hell's going on. 
as soon as we pulled back on those things, the performance kind of once started going back up again. So if you go a little bit too far and too hard to start with, you know, you can kind of, you know, each, you know, reach into your recovery a little bit more too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff. Cause I think like a lot, again, a lot of context I was, I remember I was listening to, I think it was uh, Dr. Andy Gelpin was talking yeah, about. I love heat, Andy. Yeah. He's talking <laughs> about heat exposure and he said something I, I had just moved to Phoenix and <laughs> I was listening to this interview. He's like, well, you know, if you have the athlete who is training in a hot climate already and their race is going to be, if anything, cooler than their typical training stimulus, you know, it might not be worth their time to invest 20 extra minutes in the sauna after that versus, right. you know, you take me in a previous life when I was living in Wisconsin in the dead of winter and I'm getting ready for a spring race where it might end up being twice as hot as the training environment that I'm running in. You know, that may be a time where it's worth jumping in a sauna a couple times a week uh, versus, uh, you know, here in Phoenix, where if I go out for a two hour run at any point in the summer, I'm going to probably get all the heat exposure <laughs> that any yeah. one person could want. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the cool, the, the, the cold water stuff is interesting, um, as well. I think that that's, uh, like an, an interesting stuff, but yeah, it's, 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 again, it's like, it's like what you said, these are all stressors. So you kind of need to look at like, well, where is your, your stress tolerance based on what you're doing on top of it? And are you, you know, I, I look at the, sometimes with the, 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 I guess you'd call it alt health, maybe. I don't know yeah. <laughs> uh, where, where everyone wants to kind of they get so excited. I, I mean, this is just the reality. I think when any time someone gets excited about something, they want to like get involved with all this stuff. And in the early stages, it's new, it's exciting. They're motivated and they're going to do all of it. But like, is it still going to be that exciting to do all those things four weeks in six weeks in to the point where it's actually sustainable for you to live that lifestyle and that's where I think you want to maybe be a little more conservative on introducing these different stimuluses where like if you're going to take on a low carbohydrate diet and you've lived your entire life, high carbohydrate, maybe start there versus going low carb, also doing cold water exposure, also during hot weather and changing your training stimulus <laughs> all at the same time and expect that to go well for you. Uh, some, some of it I think is just kind of common sense once you get down to thinking it through. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of it depends on what do you have access to? So I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of, you know, stacking stuff together. You know, I live in Minnesota. So this morning it was 30 degrees out. I just went for a walk in a sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't that cold. I was a little bit cold, but I'm like, okay. So I get 40 minutes of cold exposure, get some sunlight in my eyeballs, get some light movement, increase my neck since I work from home. Uh, to me, I can, you know, add a couple things in there all at the, the same time, maybe do some breathing stuff, et cetera. Um, if you're in an environment like you are, yeah, go outside, maybe run when it's a little bit warmer. Don't be an idiot. Don't give yourself heat stroke. Make sure you're <laughs> hydrated and all that kind of stuff. But you can get heat exposure at the same time with some exercise too. So I think there's ways of doing that. And like you said too, that what is kind of the, I always look at what is the leverage and what is the time invested, right? So we, I think we both agree that nutrition and exercise probably going to be like super high leverage. Assuming you can get people to do it, you know, that, that covers a lot of bases. After that, yeah, it gets a little bit trickier. Sleep, probably the next thing, harder to get people to do it, but definitely beneficial. Um, I would argue that doing maybe cold water exposure for most people of just turn your faucet to 10 to 30 seconds to cold, then you're probably going to be seeing a benefit from that. If nothing else, psychologically, that you did something really hard and you're training your brain to do harder things when needed. Uh, it's only 30 seconds. So it's hard to talk yourself out of that. 
not probably long enough to really do any potential damage or be unsafe. Um, so I think there's some easier intervention points in instead of people being like, I need to build a sauna and be in there 30 minutes every day. And I live in Phoenix. It's like, nah, it's probably not the best idea. <laughs> yeah. You're better off uh, dumping a bunch of ice in the pool. And <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but that is kind of funny. Cause like, I, I know like anytime I'll just hit the cold, the cold dial in the shower for even if, like you said, 30 seconds, it's like the equivalent of a shot of espresso for a little bit after. Oh yeah. So yeah. You, you feel great when it's done. <laughs> you can jumpstart, you can jumpstart your energy a little bit with that too, I think. So yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, Dr. Mike, uh, where can folks find you either on social media or inner or on the internet, if they're interested in either checking out some of, uh, your work or contacting you for maybe a little extra help. Sure. Um, I think Facebook is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, I think, or might be under Mike T. Nelson. Shows how much I know about that. Uh, Instagram, I think is just Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Uh, best place is through the website, uh, either MikeTNelson.com um, or the Flex Diet certification. If you go to FlexDiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com, there'll be a place where you can get on the wait list there, which will put them on to the newsletter. Newsletter is free, comes out usually like five days a week. And they can just hit reply to the newsletter, say that they heard me on this program and we'll send them a free gift. And it's probably the best way to get in contact with me is through the newsletter. So flexdiet.com and then join the wait list there. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'll put the link in the show notes. Oh, folks, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one, one quick plug for you, for folks listening to this podcast, we know you like podcasts, check out Dr. Mike's podcast. <laughs> yes, I do have one too, a Flex Diet Podcast. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you for uh, listening to it too. That's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a fun one. I, I, I like to, you know, I, I found out years ago that we were talking about killing two birds with one stone. And when I'm running at the aerobic, the low end aerobic stuff, yeah. the podcasts are the name of the game there. You can learn something and get your work on it at the same time. And and if it's summertime, a little bit of heat exposure. So that's three things. Yeah, all there you one. go. You got three and, <laughs> you know, look at the tops of trees. You get your eyeballs to focus yeah. a little farther. Uh, other than the computer screen, you're all good. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dr. Mike, for taking some time to come on. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.